hello and welcome to the Food Navigator podcast, your deep dive into the issues shaping the future of food. I'm Food Navigator journalist, Flora Sauby. Plastic pollution is a global concern. An estimated 8 million tonnes of plastic enters the marine environment every year, wreaking havoc on the planet, ocean life and even humans. In today's episode, we'll look at some of the innovations in plastic and specifically food and beverage packaging to ask if we can innovate our way out of this problem. Unequivocally, consumers are ready to have a better and more secular consumption. There's only one barrier to this is awareness and accessibility. British NGO RAP doesn't want any natural resources wasted. Rather, it is advocating for change in the way that things are produced, consumed and disposed of. In packaging, that means reusing and recycling. We caught up with Adam Herriot, Senior Specialist at RAP, to get the lay of the land and ask what concerns him about food and beverage packaging. So the problem is that there's simply we're consuming too much, um, too much of everything, really. Uh, so when it comes to packaging, um, obviously, a lot of what we're using is single use. It's you, once you've opened it up, we've used the product or the food inside, we're just simply throwing it away. And a lot of the time, not really thinking about what's happening to it once we place it into our bin. It might be that that packaging is recyclable and we're not doing it properly or we are recycling it properly. Um, but it might be that the packaging itself isn't easily recyclable. It's made of lots of different materials, lots of different types of polymers if it's plastic. Uh, it can be very difficult to separate those materials out from each other uh, to be able to recycle those into something new. What policies exist to respond to these challenges and, and are they enough? So there's a couple of different policies that exist. There's some that are uh, coming into existence or, or, or being looked at at the moment. So at the moment for, in, for plastics packaging, for example, there's the, the plastics packaging tax, which is a tax on all plastic packaging that has a less than 30% recycled content on it. Uh, and that tax at the moment is about £211 per tonne of material to place onto the market. Uh, and the idea of that is to help increase recycle, uh, recycled content in packaging, help drive demand for materials to be collected um, and help sort of make sure that that material can continue to be recycled on and on and on rather than just being simply sort of used once and then sent to landfill or energy from waste or disposed in, in that way. Uh, there's on the horizon, there's also the there's EPR, which is Extended Producer Responsibility, which puts the onus on those uh, brands and manufacturers who are, who are packaging your goods to basically pay for the, the, the collection, disposal, recycling of that material. Um, and it, what that effectively does is encourages brands and retailers to make sure their packaging is, is as recyclable as possible. There's also government targets to make sure we have uh, certain recycled, recycling rates nationally by, by different dates, so by 2025 and 2030, to make sure we're recycling more and more as well. And having those targets means that we've got something to aim for. It means that people are working towards those and they're in legislation as well. But what we are missing uh, is, is things like consistency. So what I can recycle where I live is probably going to be a bit different to what you can recycle where you live and how you recycle it. So I, my house, we have a one big really been where all our recycling goes into and then it goes off to another facility to get sourced into different materials where where other people want to live it might be they've got lots of different sort of boxes they put uh, plastic in one their cans and tins in another their their glass another and paper another one and that stuff the quality of that stuff's only a lot better they might be able to recycle more uh, and it doesn't have to go through additional processes to sort so there's lots of different things that are happening um, but they all kind of need to come together to to work coherently as well you mentioned extended producer responsibility. I'm keen to know 
do you believe that food manufacturers are currently taking enough responsibility for the packaging pollution problem? Uh, I think, to be honest, I think there's always more that can be done. Um, we don't live in a perfect system. Um, there's obviously then it comes to food. It's very difficult because you've got food safety in mind. You've got to make sure that it's the food is safe to consume. You've got to make sure the shelf life is is appropriate because food waste uh, far outstrips the impact that any packaging has. So food waste is a country. It's greenhouse gas emissions be the third largest in the world, for example. So it's a massive, massive issue, food waste. So that is paramount. But say there's always more we can, can be done. So it might be that instead of having a, uh, a piece of packaging that has layers of plastic and paper and aluminium or something else, or it might be that instead of having a, a pouch for, and it might be your cat food or baby food, and it comes in a foil laminate sort of uh, a packaging, that having that as a what we call a mono material, so one single material, uh, one single type of plastic, for example, so it's easier to, to recycle. You haven't got to separate everything out. Uh, and there's lots of things that so there's lots of things like that we could be doing to make make packaging more efficient as well. Speaking to the different responsibilities of different actors here, to what extent are consumers responsible for for packaging pollution, and whose role might it be to educate consumers to encourage behaviour change? Yeah, it's an interesting one now because I think, to be honest, it it's almost like the buck stops almost with with consumers. So brands and retailers can do everything in the world they can make they're packaging 100% recyclable and absolutely brilliant but if the consumer isn't putting it in the right bin or isn't recycling it or it's just throwing out the car window because that's what they do for some reason then there's not much else they can do so it's really really important that the consumers are doing what they're doing their part and, and making sure what they can do but at the same time there is obviously there's lots of confusion of what they can and can't recycle where they live as I mentioned before so I think it's it's really important that they're doing doing their part uh, in terms of whose responsibility is it to make sure that they know what they can do. I think that, that that lies with a number of different people, a number of different areas. So obviously, first and foremost, it could be simply their their local authority, so they can tell them what what to collect and what bin to put it in, and then what also what happens to it. So so they got, gives that transparency and confidence that what they're putting in their recycling is being recycled. Uh, it also goes down to the brands and the retailers um, to make sure that. Their packaging, as I say, is simple packaging. It is packaging that can be recycled. It isn't confusing. Um, and they can do that in a number of ways. There's, uh, there's an organisation called OPRL, so Unpack Recycling Labels, um, which you probably, we've probably seen you pick up any sort of packaging around your house. It's put might be on there. It's a little symbol at the back. It has like a, it's called the Recycle Now swoosh. It's a little circle with a heart arrow. And it says on it, recycle or don't recycle. Um, so it makes it really nice and simple for consumers to know, okay, right, what can I put in my recycling bin or what can't? Um, and there's quite criteria behind that to, to how that packaging can get those labels as well. Today on the podcast, we're looking at the role of innovation in, in food and beverage packaging. What kind of exciting innovations have you observed that you think could truly make a difference? I think exciting for me might be different to exciting for someone else because I'm a bit of a nerd like that when it comes to packaging. So for me, one of the really exciting things, it seems a very, very simple thing, but it makes a significant difference. So you might have seen on, on milk bottles, they used to have coloured tops, so the green and red and, and the blue. Simply just by taking that pigment out, that coloured top will be recycled into new bottles, whereas before, because it was coloured, it couldn't be recycled back into food packaging. It would get something down, downcycled as it's called, into something else. Whereas being a clear, it's exactly the same polymer, it's the same colour as the, or sort of same no colour as the milk bottle itself. So that can be recycled really nice and simply back into food grade, high quality packaging. So it's really important that we 
those sorts of things are, are carrying on as well. Um, so in a similar vein, so uh, there's Sprite, for example. They changed their iconic green PET bottle to one with no colour, so it's just a normal natural PET uh, bottle, which, again, that means that could be recycled back into food-grade packaging, whereas when there's colour in there, it means it can't because there's the difficulty of sourcing other coloured plastics. You get things like bottles which had a sort of a full-bodied shrink sleeve that covered the whole thing. They were very difficult to recycle because the, that that wrap that went around the outside was a different plastic to the the bottle, so it wouldn't necessarily get sorted in the same way. So therefore, wouldn't get recycled into a new plastic bottle. For example, it might go to to somewhere else to be recycled. It'd still get recycled, but again, not into that high value, high quality material. And so there's been lots of other um, really interesting ones recently around things like uh, train changing packaging from say a like mince meat, for example, has been a couple recently uh, from a rigid tray to to flexible packaging, which is means it's lightweight. It means it takes carbon emissions off the road when they're transporting things around. It still protects the meat and the meat is still fine and great. And it's it, arguably the, the shelf life of the meat is also a little bit longer as well in some cases, in a lot of cases. But again, but on, on the flip side, it is more difficult to recycle because it is a film and flexible sort of types of packaging so there's all these little things that, that go on all these little tweaks uh, that happen that have benefits in some areas uh, they might not necessarily have a benefit in another area but there's it's a generally it's a good news story it's all the same great thanks for that adam so let's hear from one of the innovators themselves uk startup zero is developing organic polymers to look and feel like clear plastic but when it's home composted it biodegrades within weeks in the ocean, it breaks down even faster and can even be safely ingested by marine life. This is because Zero's plastic alternative is based on a material found in the sea. We caught up with co-founder Francis Field to find out more. The work that we do touches on multiple global problems, um, plastic waste, food waste and soil health, um, because the materials we create, a lot of them are intended for packaging and we find that packaging kind of lands at the intersection between those problems. Um, you need packaging to get food through a supply chain. Typically, you need plastic packaging to extend shelf life to protect food. At the same time, plastic is a huge environmental problem. Uh, so the two kind of there's, there's a tension there and we're creating materials to replace plastic. So solving for plastic, solving for food waste. Um, in many cases, we've been able to extend shelf life. And uh, the materials we make are made from seaweed. Uh, they're natural polymers, they're biodegradable, they're home compostable, which means that when they're composted, they contribute to increasing soil health. Um, way back at the beginning of our journey, we talked to farmers and they they mentioned um, paper bioplastics turning up in their soil because it's going through industrial processing facilities and it's not breaking down we thought that was a huge problem and um, so we're working to ensure that everything we make breaks down very rapidly in, in natural environments wherever it ends up of course we're not encouraging littering um, you know the, the the natural end of life for our products is in is in food waste uh, bins food waste collections and that's uh, uh, an infrastructure that's increasingly been rolled out in the UK and abroad Seaweed, that's an interesting material. How did that come about? Uh, it started in a way by setting a, a brief for what a new material would need to do if it was to replace plastic. And I don't myself take any credit for that. It's, it goes on to my, my um, co-founder, 
Eicher, who who set herself that brief, knowing you know the problems of plastic and wanting to tackle ocean waste. So knowing that you know for consumer acceptance, you need something that looks and feels like plastic. Need to achieve high tensile strength, transparency, but then we also now want the product to go away, the material to go away as fast as possible after it's been used. And seaweed, for many reasons, um, because it's a kind of natural polymer, a, a sulfated polysaccharide, ticks all those boxes. And, and so we found that we can make it into uh, a series of different materials, many of which fall into you know great alternatives for single-use packaging. So flexible films. We're, ta- we're targeting the really big offenders, the ubiquitous plastic waste that you get everywhere and really shouldn't be ever made of plastic in the first place. How do you source your your raw material, the seaweed? The sourcing has been quite a journey. Um, we actually had a breakthrough recently because we set up a partnership with the world's largest, largest organic seaweed producer, Salt Marine. Uh, it's essentially a multinational operation, but they're headquarters in Tunisia. And we recently visited them in uh, Bizerte, and we saw where they were they were farming seaweed uh, in in kind of intertidal waters, and then bringing it onshore, drying it in the sun, and then within a few yards also processing it into feedstocks that we can use to convert into the materials that we make. The, the traceability of of the feedstocks is obviously really important, so we know exactly where it came from. They don't add anything to the seaweed. They don't. It doesn't need land. It doesn't need fresh water to grow. It doesn't need any pesticides. So um, it, it's, an, it's an amazing process that can also capture carbon. And when that carbon is captured, that's also locked into our packaging. And when it's composted, uh, a portion of that is going back to soil. Um, and so we're, we're able to act in, in some ways as a kind of carbon sink. In terms of the end of life, is it really as simple as putting it in home composting or in the composting that, that's taken off by our local councils? It, it's very simple in that. It performs very well in those conditions, and you know we've been able to show that our material breaks down in a matter of weeks. We've needed to draw a distinction between disintegration and biodegradation, and a lot of the problems that we've seen in alternative materials recently stem from that. Um, the, the current guidance allows disintegration, which leaves five percent of the material behind, but five percent of a hundred thousand tons is uh, a lot of plastic, a lot of bioplastic. Um, so we ensure that everything breaks down entirely because we use natural polymers. So these are things that are non-chemically modified. That's a very important topic in the single-use plastics regulation um, and legislation that's being rolled out. And, it, and it's really looking to create or, or, or mandate that materials are not chemically modified in a way that means that uh, they can't be eaten by things that are in the environment, be they microbes or animals, uh, they're digestible. So everything we make falls within that that space. I'd love to hear a little bit more about the functionality that this material provides relevant to food packaging, because often there are certain specifications whether um, a food packaging may require heating or freezing, um, obviously shelf life. Could mm-hmm. you give us a little bit more insight into that? So we're targeting applications that the material is inherently good at. So we're not trying to make difficult things like Coke bottles or trays that you hold a curry and you put in the microwave <laughs> and things like this that are made from really tough plastics. We're, we're, we're trying to replace things like flow wraps, like punnets, like um, single use cups and, and, and things that, you know, are typically just used for a, a few minutes or a couple of weeks. And the report, the performance requirements are, are relatively 
low in in some respects. In other respects, you know, they they have to they certainly have to move very fast through supply chains and manufacturing uh, equipment. But performance wise, it's relatively low. When we looked at plastic in flow wraps, for example, we found that when they were wrapping fresh produce. Uh, if, if you look closely, you'll often see that it's perforated, macro or micro perforated, because plastic actually creates too much of a barrier and that causes condensation, which leads to premature food waste. And, and so um, replacing it for another material is not, not a bad thing. In many ways, it can be an advantage. Has that been one of the biggest challenges you found in developing your material and taking it to market? Is it really the technical side? I think... A much greater challenge than that, because, you know, I, I believe that with with time and funding and with the right team, I, I really think you can solve those problems. I think that the bigger challenge is, has been and, and remains bringing all the parties together, all the all the partnerships, all the alignments inside industry, outside industry, between governments and institutions and, you know, expert organisations like RAP, etc., to to really agree and align on the messaging because it's very very it's actually a very, very complex problem and we've watched as we've been doing this project the narratives and the legislation evolving and um you know we we need support for things like food food waste collection and rap for example has done an amazing job of that and we need governments to legislate to move away from single use plastic because we know that the the big offenders are very adverse to risk They've, they've got their system set up to just churn this stuff out and it's really hard to move away from it without uh, a higher force in a way coming in and saying, okay, all of you, you've got to, this has got to stop. This has got to move on. So it's, so it's that bringing together different parties and, and forming alliances. I guess, um, in, in signing up new partners, price will be a major factor. Are you working or how far away are you from price parity? And are you, is that kind of, the end goal. I've always said I don't think it needs to be priced on on a par with plastic. Funnily enough, it might end up there because plastic increasingly is is attracting these taxes and levies against it, etc. So we're seeing plastic prices go up uh, as our prices come down, and uh, obviously price and and volume of production, especially in you know commodities, is very closely linked. Um, so as we scale up production, uh, cost is coming down. There will initially be price differences, but important thing to remember, a lot of the, the full cost of plastic is essentially nationalised, the cost of cleanup, the cost of waste management. We're paying for it in our taxes, so you, may, you might not see it in the packaging of the food you buy. You know, it's, it's that fraction of a pence per unit, etc. But in the end, you're paying for it in animals, ecosystem, biodiversity loss, toxicity. And if our products are a bit more expensive and those costs are in there, built in up front because there isn't any cost of cleanup in the same sense, I think it's pretty good value. Another innovator in the field is Loop by TerraCycle, a circular economy business advocating for reusability. We spoke to Clement Schmid, General Manager of Loop Global, to find out how the platform works in practice for both businesses and consumers. TerraCycle is a mission-driven company. For 20 years, we've been uh, working towards, uh, towards this mission of eliminating the idea of waste. And we've done this via programs of recycling hard, uh, hard to recycle goods, 
and uh, and packages across the globe. We operate today in 20 uh, in 20 country, which is taking uh, taking hard to recycle good and then reintroducing also recycled content into uh, into the supply chain. And Loop is the next evolution of the work uh, that we've been doing towards our mission, and it's really tackling waste at the root cause, which is disposability. So preventing packages from becoming waste in the first place by keeping them as they today are as long as possible into the uh, into the economy. The good news for me and the important news also for all of us is loop is not a new concept. Some of us will be aware or will remember or have experienced the milkman, uh, which was dropping uh, milk in uh, in the morning in a very durable and reusable bottle. So Loop is about modernizing that concept and bringing it back, adapting it to our modern ways of uh, of consumption. As we need to understand that today, it's not only one type of milk bottle that we have to deal with, but you have full fat milk and non-fat milk and almond milk and soy milk. And I could name probably not the list would not be exhaustive because I'm not an expert, but like that would be a lot of different products. And this is where all modern society have taken today's consumption. The milk bottle in the milkman, uh, in the milkman model uh, was an asset from the manufacturer, uh, the milkman, and the milkman was economically, not from an environmental standpoint, but from an economic standpoint, motivated to make it as durable as possible. That's, that's what uh, Loop is bringing, bringing into our, our model. We work with brands uh, manufacturer to bring them back the ownership of the package which is in, uh, in our disposable consumption has actually been transferred to people like you and me, who, mind you, don't even intend to own a package in the first place. We're only interested into the, into the, the content. So we work with brand manufacturer, bringing back the ownership of uh, the package, which unleash the opportunity to make it as long lasting as possible. That's the whole part on reusable. But not only this, by having an asset that you are going to be able to invest behind, it also brings better packaging. So it brings innovation and it brings incremental value into, uh, into the market, which at the end, consumers, people like you and me, will ultimately benefit from having, uh, having a better experience with their product. Practically, how does it work? We work as Loop with brand manufacturers, big renowned brands such as Nestle, Procter & Gamble, Unilever, Danone, and retailers across the globe like Carrefour, uh, like Tesco, who have been to, to develop and distribute reusable product. The only change we're bringing into this distribution to consumer is the addition of a small refundable deposit, which is fully reimbursed to uh, consumers upon the return of the empty package at any loop collection point, independently from where it's been purchased. 
and afterwards we work and coordinate the full reverse logistic. So by reverse logistic is everything from the moment it's been dropped at, uh, at a loop collection point until the moment it reaches back uh, the manufacturing line to be refilled and be sold again to another consumer. That would include collection, sorting, deposit management, storing and cleaning. The model does not sound dissimilar to a classic deposit return scheme, or DRS, whereby a deposit is paid by the consumer when a beverage is purchased to be returned when the consumer deposits the empty container. But Clements told us there is at least one important difference. I would argue Loop is a type of DRS system. The only thing that where we have bigger ambition versus what I have seen of DRS system, like the one that is being talked in Scotland, for example, is we don't serve it in only one category. So Loop has proven a DRS system which spans across as many SKUs as, as you can possibly think. I, I'm often joking and saying like anything from baby food to motor oil and everything in between, personal care, home care products. So we believe everything that is packaged in a single use packaging today can be packaged into a reusable packaging tomorrow. You will find many different types of material on the, on the Loop platform, and that's because materials have different properties that are more or less relevant to different categories. So if I have to give you the big categories, you will obviously find glass product in the categories of food and beverage. We know that this is a widely available material. We will find also alloys, so like stainless steel, for example, and we will also find durable plastic. So in the, in the food and beverage category, we already know about reusable PET or polypropylene as two big forms of durable plastic that are being used in that sector. Another way Loop differs from the type of DIS system that was scheduled to roll out in Scotland this year is in its collection point network. Consumers don't have to deposit the container back where they purchased that exact product. So the Loop collection points to date work within the Loop network. So any partner of Loop has a Loop collection point, which enables for us, as I was, uh, as I was mentioning, the buy anywhere, return anywhere system. So you can buy your product into a retail partner A and return it into a retail uh, partner uh, partner B. So you will find the majority of the collection points to date into retailer stores, for example. But as we grow and develop, like our objectives will have to maximize the accessibility so you can think about expansion of the network across many different other locations, both private and public. I wanted to know whether Clements has observed a change in mentality amongst businesses and consumers. Is there a feeling that we're headed towards a truly circular economy? Unequivocally, consumers are ready to have a better and more circular consumption. There's only one barrier to this is awareness and accessibility. And I mean, they've proven it to, uh, to the industry over and over, whether you're looking at many studies that have, uh, that have been published by either big, big consulting firm or, um, 
opinions uh, monitoring. I'm thinking there's been an Ipsos study done in France very recently uh, showing very impressive numbers into what people declare they're ready to do. And beyond declaration, we do see behavior change in market. Uh, we see people on the Loop platform, but also on many other reusable uh, reusable initiatives that are existing out there where people are coming, they're buying, they're repeating, they're returning. Uh, what we need to take into consideration is we want to do this and we are all in the same position. We all run busy life. We offer uh, all of our to-do lists and everything. We need to make it as an industry as easy as possible as the consumers. We need to make it accessible. We need to develop a wide range of products. So we make that transition as smooth as possible for, uh, for everyone. A big thank you to Clemence, Adam and Francis for joining me on the Food Navigator podcast. Thanks for listening and please tune in next time.